0: Hello, beauties and beasts and archers and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Uh, Our guest today is just one of the best damn film critics to ever do the thing. Uh, She's currently the film critic for a uh, little publication called Time Magazine. Uh, And previously, her byline just appeared all over the place, uh, most notably at the Village Voice uh, Salon and the Boston Phoenix. She's a member and former chair of the New York Film Critics Circle. Um, Oh, and in 2015, she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism. uh, So she's kind of a big deal. Here's Stephanie Zaharik. Hi, Stephanie.
1: Hi, Jason and Michael.
0: Hello, and uh, and we're here to talk about, uh, you know, we've been running through a lot of sort of 60s and 70s and 80s lately. And uh, when I came to you to do the show, you said you wanted to go uh, earlier. Uh, what year did you choose for this evening's conversation and why?
1: 1946. Um, I, I think what started it was I've been watching the best years of our lives A bunch of times in the past few years because I've been teaching it I teach a a graduate criticism course at NYU and it's the first movie that I show them and even though they're um, cinema studies students and they've seen a lot of films a lot of times they haven't seen that one Mm. so uh, I was just I had just shown it to them um, in January and I watched it with them, as I always do. And I realized a couple things. First of all, it's three hours long, and it goes by like a shot. Yeah. And also, I you know I teach in this kind of auditorium, and I was sitting, it was a small auditorium, you know, and I was sitting toward in the front, and I, I didn't sense anyone moving, fidgeting, like they were just completely with it. And, and then we discussed it the following week, and they really responded to it. And I thought just how wonderful it is that we can show people this, young people, this yeah. film. Yeah. And it, it just completely connects. And it's about, uh, you know, men returning from the war and... um just really, uh, you know, feeling very comfortable among themselves, but then they have to resituate themselves with their families. Um, you know, in one case with, uh, you know, a fiance, and I just think it's an incredible film. So that was sort of the one thing that I that I sort of went for, and then I started looking at some of the other things and also how some of the other movies that we're going to talk about connect um, with that film. In um, you know some in pretty direct ways, and others in you know perhaps more tenuous ways, and I just thought, yeah, this 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 is a pretty good year. <laughs>
0: It's almost like that's that's a really good transition. Thank you for the title shout out. Um, no, that's something that, you know, that, that we've been actually on a run of shows lately. I believe our last three guests um, were, uh, I, when I asked why they picked the year, it was a working backwards situation. It was like, I want to talk about this movie. And then I looked to see what the year was. And then I saw, you know, some of the other things around it. But, you know, more generally speaking, I mean, you've written a lot. We have talked a lot just about this particular era. Like there's a particular, you know, kind of film fan who just sort of gravitates to the cinema of the forties, you know, and maybe even specifically post-war cinema. And I was just curious if, if, you know, if, if you've given any thought, if you have anything to share about sort of why you like that particular um, stretch of cinema so much.
1: Well, I love noir and Westerns mm-hmm. um, so particularly the things that came along in the the later in the 40s and through the 50s where uh, people were feeling really disillusioned and it was coming out in the cinema um yeah. I mean I love that really kind of dark period but 1946 like they hadn't really entered that era yet it's mm-hmm. it's like this this um kind of bardo almost <laughs> where um you know people are kind of getting back into making film certainly in europe and in the uk i mean right um that's a whole different situation over there that we can talk about so um so i think this era it, it's kind of i don't want to call it a sweet spot because it was a really really difficult time but also this time of kind of re-emerging into the world and before that really kind of dark stuff like the you know noir crime thrillers and you know westerns with men questioning their masculinity and you know all of that stuff that came later so um i think that's one of the things that um you know that that really appealed to me about this specific year and and really like 1947 48 it starts changing really quickly
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, as you mentioned, it was a really dark time. And on that note, uh, we're going to take a look at what all was happening in the world outside of the movie palace in uh, 1946. Here's Mike with headlines.
2: Dark time. (laughs) Wow. That's an understatement. Uh, (laughs) There's some silver linings. 1946 is primarily known as the first full year in the 20th century during which Adolf Hitler was D.E.D., It was a good year for dead Nazis, so more on that to come. This was the first post-World War II year, and of course everything was defined by that. There were new governments, in some cases whole new countries being established all year long, including in Vietnam, Albania, France, Austria, Iran, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Jordan, Gold Coast, Malaysia, Syria, Italy, Philippines, Czechoslovakia, and Bulgaria. There were also war crimes trials going down, mostly in Germany and Japan, Because they lost and that's how war crimes trials go.
3: Nuremberg, Germany, once the shrine city of the Nazis, ravaged by the war Hitler launched on the world, ironically, the scene of the final chapter of his Partners in Conquest. American units were on security guard outside the Palace of Justice during history's most momentous trial. No chances were taken on any escape plots. Carefully scrutinized were the passes of the 400 spectators and court attendants. For in the courtroom, the first of the Nuremberg trials was being held before the International Military Tribunal set up. By an agreement signed between the U.S., Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union,
2: in October, ten convicted Nazis were hung after the Nuremberg Trials found them guilty. A.F. Hermann Goering was supposed to be in that group of long necks, but he ate poison two hours before the hanging and died like the scumbag rat he was.
0: Big, big hand for uh, for the Grim Reaper, everybody. Really, really working overtime in 1946. Yeah. Yay.
2: Yeah, here's to that. Like I said, silver lining to 46. Yep. Uh, In the East, Japanese Lieutenant General Masaharu Hama was executed for leading the Bataan Death March, and frankly, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. (laughs) Fuck him. Uh, Japanese general and overall military commander Hideki Tojo was held by American forces before his war crimes trial. And the best story about him, have you ever heard this? He got dentures. His teeth were all fakakta, you know. And he got dentures when he was in American custody. And the dentist who made his dentures... Put remember Pearl Harbor in Morse code on the inside of the dentures. Right. And he had been a military guy like he definitely could read Morse code. So he just had to sit there and feel remember Pearl Harbor in his mouth for.
0: Good Lord.
2: Yeah. I mean, like the petty is astounding. Yeah, bro. Astounding.
3: Flags of the 51 member countries fly before the temporary headquarters of the United Nations General Assembly at Flushing Meadow Park, Long Island. Eleanor Roosevelt, United States delegate, is among the more than 400 on hand. Russia's Foreign Minister Molotov is accompanied by Vice Foreign Minister Vyshinsky. And the American Party is headed by Secretary of State Burns, back from the Peace Conference who smilingly obliges the cameraman before the opening of the historic session?
2: The League of Nations came to an end in 46 and passed their duties on to the United Nations,
3: which okay. was started in 46. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe.
2: Winston Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri and gave the first year of the Cold War a new catchphrase for the merch.
0: You know, if if Winston Churchill was was about one thing, it was branding. He was a, he was really <laughs> ahead of his time. He he was an influencer, uh, and an entrepreneur and uh and a brander.
2: History will treat me well because I will write it. Maybe his best quote. <laughs> Calcutta suffered the week of the Long Knives ending with 3,000 dead in fighting between Hindus and Muslims. There would be similar battles across India all year before the creation of Pakistan the following year and a great separation and migration that was a complete and utter fucking
3: tragedy. These were the events to burn most deeply into the memory. Five times the atom bomb has scattered its detonations through the world. Twice upon the cities of an enemy. Three times in military experiments. These are mankind's five warnings. A sixth delivered in war will mean the end of our civilization. That is the message of the year 1946.
2: And finally, there were a lot of nuclear bombs dropped in 1946, but they were on little islands that didn't exist after we bombed them, so we all just sort of act like it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's not fun to talk about. But here's a a fun fact. One way of loosely aging unknown remains, right? Like when they just sort of find bones and they don't know how old they are. If they have uranium in them, they know that person was alive after the 40s. Good Lord. Because they spread so much uranium around that now we all have trace elements in our bodies.
0: You know, my... So that's
2: a weird, shitty fact about 1946.
0: I... You know, Stephanie's a friend, Mike, and uh, I did not know we were going quite this bleak on headlines this evening, Mike. I I didn't pick the year. I'm sorry. There's like
2: (laughs) literally nothing good happened. The only good things that happened is dead Nazis. I'm really sorry. I tried. I super tried. I swear. Yeah. Uh, A lot of cool people who were born that year who got to do cool things later. So that's coming up. All right. All very right. soon. The first programmable digital computer was unveiled at the University of Pennsylvania. It weighed 60,000 pounds and did not fit in your pocket. Uh, the bikini was modeled for the first time in Paris. Wait, I thought you said no good things.
0: The bikini. That's good, right? Bikinis. Yeah, I'm, I'm all right with bikinis. Yes. Let's go with
1: that. Not with the bikini atoll, but with bikinis. Yes.
2: <laughs> Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis debuted as a comedy as a comedy team at Club 500 in Atlantic City.
1: That's an excellent thing.
2: There you go.
0: Somebody was, yeah, there were some jokes somewhere. Uh, Mensa Mm -hmm. was founded. I do not believe it's a coincidence that Mensa was founded the same year that Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis made their debut. That is not not a coincidence.
2: And the first drive up bank teller windows were open at Exchange National Bank in Chicago. All right, making life easier for all of us. Uh, Some new babies to bring hope to a hopeless world. Diane Keaton, Sid Barrett, John Paul Jones, Robbie Krieger, Dolly Parton, the Queen. David Lynch, uh Gene Siskel, Charlotte Rampling, Gregory Hines, activist Karen Silkwood. Uh here you go, Jason. Here's here's one for you. Mm-hmm. Alan Rickman, Liza Minnelli, Tim Curry, John Waters.
0: Dream Blunt Rotation.
2: <laughs> As I was typing them out, I was like, okay, yeah. Pause for for, for Dream Blunt Rotation on that. Uh yeah. Talia Shire, Egyptian actor Norell Sharif, Bill Plimpton, Cher, Ricky Jay, Gilda Radner. Sly, Stallone, not Stone, (laughs) Cheech Marin, Danny Glover, Tommy Lee Jones, Oliver Stone, Susan Sarandon, Sally Field, Terrence McKenna, Jonathan Katz, and finally, Andre Rene Rusimov, better known as Andre the Giant, my man.
0: (laughs) Andre the Giant. That's that's all I could do. That's the closest thing I've got to an Andre the Giant impression. He is still having fun storming the
2: castle, I'm sure. Yes, he is. The first ever Formula One race was held in Turin, Italy. Uh, Jackie Robinson played for the AAA affiliate of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So this is one year before he broke the final color barrier for black players in Major League Baseball when he did the exact same thing for AAA uh, and it had the predicted results. But he kicked everybody's ass and, you know, that's what it was about, right? Results. The Boston Celtics were founded as part of the also new National Basketball Association.
0: The, the stacking of these news items, Mike, makes it sound very much like the whitest team in basketball was formed because Jackie Robinson started playing pro baseball. I just want you to know that that's that's the transition that I got from that.
2: Sometimes art reveals things, mm-hmm. you know, that might be true. Assault became the seventh horse to win the Kentucky Derby. Uh, Joe Davis beat Horace Lindrum 78 to 67 at the world snooker championships. And then he retired because he had won for 15 years in a row.
0: Goat. snooker. My, really? Goat we're status. doing, we're, we're, you're really, you're still taking the payoffs from big snooker to put snooker news into the headlines. Seriously. A
2: 15 year run. Shameless. I'm just saying they sent a hell. I don't even know release. what that
0: means. He did for 15 years. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that. I don't understand it.
2: And finally, there was a long list of international sporting events that were not held due to all the nonsense in the first part of this headline segment, including speed skating, rugby, figure skating, the Tour de France, and worst of all, the 1946 World Cup was cancelled, only one of literally millions of reasons to hate fascists. That's headlines.
0: All right. Thank you, Mike. Sorry. Sorry about the World Cup in 1946. <laughs> All right. So, Stephanie, are you ready to do a top five? Sure.
3: Five
0: All right, Stephanie. So we decided we're going to rank these just sort of thematically um, from from toughest to lightest, which I think is a is a is a new and fun way to uh, to walk through the top five. So so starting with the, the heaviest picture of the bunch, Stephanie's a character. What is your number five movie for 1946?
1: Okay. This may not actually be the heaviest, but um, it is pretty heavy. The best years of our lives. These are
3: the great personalities who bring a memorable experience to glowing light. Samuel Goldwyn's masterpiece. The screenplay was written by Robert E. Sherwood, Pulitzer prize winning playwright of petrified forest and idiots delight from this. William Wyler, who won the Academy Award for his direction of Mrs. Miniver, wove a pattern of motion picture magic with Myrna Loy and Frederick March living through the heartwarming second bloom of love. Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright feeling the breathtaking thrill of love at first sight. Hoagie Carmichael spreading his own brand of stardust. All of them together giving all of us the best years of our lives.
1: It's a very optimistic film, so I, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's obviously not completely depressing. Um, but basically, you have these three soldiers coming back from the war. Um, one played by Frederick March, and he's like a slightly older banker type. Um, one played by Dana Andrews, and he was a, uh, an, Orf- an Air Force uh, bomber. And a sailor played by Harold Russell, who was actually a non-professional actor um, who had lost both of his hands, uh, I think during a a training maneuver, but while he was in the service. And um, he plays a young man coming back to his hometown and he's not sure how his fiance is going to feel about his situation his new disability which he himself um is still adjusting to and uh so basically they come home to their their wives their girlfriends and they're kind of starting all over again yeah
0: yeah it's it, it... There's so much happening in this film, you know, thematically and narratively. And I guess I think that, you know, I I will own it. I had not seen this before, uh, before this week, before I watched it for the show. Um, and just as a as a screenwriting exercise, it's sort of astonishing that uh that it's dealing with really heavy current events. Um and also, but but not in a way that feels at all didactic or sort of preachy or anything like that. It's telling you know in, in, sort of a melodramatic story, but never also again in a sort of soppy way. What do you think the the sort of the the, the trick is here? How do, how does it achieve that balance?
1: I think one thing was that William Wyler um, was also the director, William Wyler. Um, was also adjusting readjusting to a new life. Um, and he had been in the service, he'd been in the air force and he was actually making documentaries. Um, and while he was doing that, um, because he was going on these bombing raids, he actually, uh, lost, uh, his hearing, I think in one year. So, so he was partially deaf. So he came back from the war and he was kind of casting around for, uh, new project. I think he owe, he owed like one more picture to Samuel Goldwyn on a, a contract. And there had been this script floating around and it had been a little, it was complex for a couple of different reasons I won't go into. But um, he looked at it and he said, oh, I, I, I kind of like this story. I think I can do something with it. So um, he uh, started pulling it together and they, I forget the actual timeline, but they, they like got this film going in a ru- really like short period yeah. of time. It came together pretty quickly, so it, it felt. I think for audiences, it felt really immediate. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you know, we'll we'll talk when we get to the Oscar segment about the sort of extraordinary achievement of of Russell in the film and uh, and and how it was rewarded. But you know the what what was really striking about for me about those sections of the film were you know even now we have such you know filmmakers have such a tendency to you know to sort of sentimentalize this kind of material uh to address it in a way that's sort of infantilizing or condescending and there's so little of that in 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 this movie you know the you know probably I'm sure a great deal because of how much honesty and and real life he he brought to that performance. but um i I have a particular scene in the film that that just absolutely broke me. I, I'm curious to to sort of know what what moments of his you think are are sort of the 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 most uh, the most moving for you.
1: The one that really gets me is, um, you know, he's he's lost his hand, so he has these hooks. and he can't get himself ready for bed. Um, so his father was, you know, the older guy, um, you know, they have like this little signal, you know, um, when I, uh, Harold Russell's character is named Homer and, um, so Homer gives him a signal and the father just comes in and, uh, just kind of helps his son like out of this apparatus and then puts his pajamas on for him and then I think at one point he like takes a cigarette and like holds it for him so that his son can have a drag on the cigarette and the way it's done, the father is just so matter of fact about it that it you can feel this deep affection it's not even like a sense of duty, it's and also there's like a connection between them I think because of like manhood mm-hmm. like the father realizes how tough this is for his son so he's just gonna come in and he's just gonna get it done in this very efficient kind of matter of-fact way but there's also this really beautiful tenderness to it and I don't know if that's the scene that you were thinking of but <laughs> the
0: the scene that moved me to tears is sort of the follow-up to that with him and the fiance. Yeah. Um, when when he's showing her what he will need her to do, and the way that she reacts to that, and and it's it, there's such there's such love and heart in that sequence, but also I found it's, it's it's also sort of tinged with a very mature sensuality. The way that he when he says, "But I can't button him up," and she says, "I'll do that, Homer," and it's just it's there's something so profound about love and acceptance in that moment it really got to me
1: yeah it it's 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 really an incredible moment and that actress i can't remember her name but she's so she's perfectly cast because she really has this girl next door freshness about mm-hmm. her you know the beautiful smile and um you know and you I mean the first time you see her you know like yeah. this is it's not gonna be a problem yeah but Homer d- does not he just cannot see that in yeah. in his heart and and so yeah that's the moment where it really comes together for him that that she loves him and she's she's really in this with him
0: yeah yeah it's a great movie it's a great movie um okay so uh with that in mind oh uh, I just
1: need to Give a little shout out to I'm gonna break that marriage up. Oh my god, that was the other thing I wrote down.
0: It's like that is such a great moment when, and I, and I was not expecting that. That's oh. it's, it's such a wonderful confounding of audience expectation. Oh of. my god,
1: <laughs> Teresa Wright, I bow down to you. And you know, often, like if there's like a, a new young, like, or not even young, but like good looking actor that I like, I, you know, I'll look up on IMDb and I'll see if they're married and if right. they are. Then I say to myself, I'm gonna break that marriage up. I've never, I've not ever done it. It's just a fantasy thing. I just, I don't know. I just, I love to say it. It's a
0: great, it's a great moment. So, uh, moving on to another film from another filmmaker who was also returning from overseas at the same time. Stephanie, what is your number four movie for 1946?
1: It's Let There Be Light by John Huston.
0: This hospital is one of the many for the
3: care and treatment of the psychoneurotic soldier. These are the casualties of the spirit, the troubled in mind, men who are damaged emotionally, men who cannot sleep, men with pains that are nonetheless real because they are of mental origin, men who cannot remember, paralyzed men whose paralysis is dictated by the mind
1: which um, actually was not even released in 1946. Um, uh, Basically, Houston wanted to make this documentary also, I mean, not a fiction film, but an actual documentary about veterans um, coming back from the war who had uh, anxiety problems, emotional problems. So basically... PTSD, although yeah. they didn't have that name for it. Were
0: they still time. calling it shell shock then? Or had we had we even moved past that?
1: I you know, I'm not sure. I think they had a fancy. They name don't for use it. that
0: phrase in the movie. Okay. They
1: they don't, but it they call it like psychoneurological. They had some like yeah. kind of It's
2: sort of between shell shock and PTSD. Right. You know, like there's sort of a, a midpoint. Uh yeah and it's it's psychoneurological defunction or something it's like it's it's definitely something we wouldn't use now. Right. Like we would do shell shock before we do <laughs> before we would go back to
1: that. Right. This is yeah, very descriptive. I mean you know what that means. Um so like the best years of our our lives um it the best years of our lives is also about PTSD. Um uh, uh and, but this film, you see these actual veterans coming back and uh, they're in this hospital for treatment and they're just, they're broken men. Um, and Houston, uh, he he was really passionate about this project and, um, you know, the, these men, I mean, they knew he was filming and they kind of got used to the camera, but what, they're talking about their specific problems. Like some of them have kind of sudden uh, stuttering problems. There is one guy who uh, he's perfectly, physiologically he's fine, but he just can't walk. Mm. And you see these nurses leading him in and his legs are like jelly, you Mm. know? Um, And there is one, this guy just totally breaks my heart. This guy who just talks about uh how homesick he was and he's he's very eloquent and he says to the um psychiatrist that he's talking to then these are like army psychiatrists like they're you know trained to deal with these problems but you can tell (laughs) Uh, you know that whole that's a whole interesting thing by itself but this guy says i believe you professionals call it nostalgia and (laughs) It's just basically he was so so homesick for uh, his um, his wife, and then he breaks down crying. And then later in the film, when these guys are they're starting to feel a little bit better from this treatment, and Houston even acknowledged that he kind of went for the cases that were more uh, more successful, like sure. had like quicker success, sure. quicker um, you know recovery and uh you see this guy sitting on the lawn with his wife who has come to visit him on visiting day mm. and she's just the loveliest woman she's got this radiant smile and they're so happy to be together and it's just oh my god i mean it's this thing that you really need yeah. to to kind of bring the whole thing together so um it, it's a it's a really incredible film unfortunately no one could see it because even though Houston had permission to film in the hospital, apparently later the army claimed that he didn't have the proper release forms. And of course these guys are, you know, they're all very visible in this film and they're, um, you know, they're being very open about these very personal problems. And um, people, uh, not just Houston, but people around him, fought for this film to get out. Um, among, those, among some critics, um, mm-hmm. James A. G actually was one of the people who said, like, this film must be seen. Yeah. But the Army was like, nope, 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 no way. And Houston tried again, I think in 1952, and they said, nope, tried again in the early 70s. Pentagon said, nope. Mm. And then I think... Think it was the intercession of Walter Mondale, who was mm. vice president at the time, who said like this film ought to be seen, and finally in 1980 it um, he was allowed to show it in New York. Um, so it kind it's kind of it's a
2: really hard movie. I mean, it's it sort of seems to live in that that like weird sweet spot in time where the technology was good enough that you could really feel a person. In the camera, you know you could really feel what they're doing, but it wasn't sort of common enough that it's it's almost like you know they're they're both sort of so broken at the beginning of the movie, and I think the technology is new enough that it was really it just feels real in a way that almost nothing does now mm. almost nothing you know yeah. And it's I I found it very hard to watch. I think everybody should watch it, but I'm not I'm probably not going to watch it twice. You know, and then like like I'm not like the end didn't feel. It didn't feel fake, but it did feel like there must be people who somebody who was left out. (laughs) You know, like when you see the guy who was having a hard time walking and he's like literally running the bases and sliding into home base feet first and then popping up with a laugh. Like, oh, God, I needed that. But there was a part of me that felt like that was just that was government propaganda. I don't know. Like, I didn't. That
0: was the only part of the movie I didn't trust for some reason. I mean, John Huston's a storyteller. You know, Uh, uh, at the end of the day, he's 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 got a story to tell. Powerful. Yeah
1: and also um just a little shout out for Mark Harris's fantastic yes. book 5 came back yes. and he kind of explains the whole story of what happened with this film and apparently that baseball game at the end was kind of set up so sure. that he you know he he would have some sort of way to cap off this film and he even he did admit that he kind of went for the cases that showed more immediate Right. success, even though obviously um not all of those guys just kind of walked out of there like completely cured. But uh yeah, but it it is a tough movie. And a really beautiful movie, but also really, really hard to watch.
2: But important in the same way that, you know, some of the Vietnam era movies that we saw, you know, where where you're not just sort of seeing bombs sort of falling out of sky onto you know countryside that you've never seen and are never going to see but you're actually right. like hearing people who grew up in your era and and maybe even in your town and you're seeing the impact on them you know I feel like that I you know the the reason it's the reason why we're still talking about it is cuz they didn't make very many of those after world war 2 I think they there were more of those made after Vietnam and of course now you know it's 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 gone up exponentially but this is sort of I don't think people had really done this before and as you said nobody saw it till the 80s so it's not like it could come out and a bunch of people could be like that's amazing now we're gonna do 50 of those after korea you know so yeah
1: and it also might have helped people to see this film yeah that's the thing really tragic about it you know even i mean my dad was in the coast guard during world war ii and he was on a ship in the pacific and he didn't you know he didn't see action, so it wasn't that kind of thing. But And he never talked about this, but my mother told me and my sisters that he had these terrible nightmares, like claustrophobia nightmares, because they were packed so tightly on that ship. So, you know, I mean, even little things like that. Like, I, I don't think any of those guys came back without something, you know. So to see this incredible... Um, uh, you know just very forthright document is is really something
0: great movie great movie okay stephanie what is your number three movie for 1946 as, as we as we lighten up a touch a little
1: bit my number three is the powell pressburger masterpiece a matter of life and death I've fallen in
3: love because of your mistake. Well, if it's a respectable place, there must be a law of appeal.
1: But this has never been done.
3: I call squadron leader Peter D. Carter. You claim you love her. I do love her. Would you die for him? I would, but uh, I'd rather live.
1: A title that
0: could also be used for the previous two movies, <laughs> exactly,
1: and also about PTSD. I mean, yeah. basically, this is a guy, um, uh, David Niven plays a British pilot. Um, at pretty much as the movie opens, his plane is going down. His buddy is like dead in the cockpit. His uh, parachute is not going to work, and he has made radio contact with uh, an American stationed in Great Britain, this, uh, woman, uh, a whack. Um, and he's talking to her and he's reciting poetry to her. He recites, um, uh, something I think that Andrew Marvell is one of them. And, uh, and they just kind of have this immediate connection.
2: It's amazing. It connects you to the movie so fast. Yeah. I mean, like, it's so weird. (laughs) <laughs> and so well done. I mean, I yeah. put, I was, I had my whole family over for dinner last night. I Had a, like a you know weekly family dinner thing, and I was like, hey y'all, check this out. We're gonna watch this movie, and everybody's kind of like, whoo. That's always iffy, you know, and somebody throws on a movie for the whole family. But halfway through that scene, like you know, my mother's leaning in, like everybody was super into the movie from that point forward. Not G. George, P. Peter, D. Daniel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: The the pace of it, the everything about that opening
0: scene is absolutely yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, real inopportune moment for a meet-cute, but still, it's so beautifully done, yeah.
1: I think for them, you know, this was um, just kind of opening this door into this new realm of imagination, I think, that really, and they had made terrific films before that. This wasn't their first, obviously. But, um, so, in a way, I mean, I think it's kind of a cool film because in its, total weirdness um it 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 kind of um it's kind of leading the way to uh black narcissus which is just oh my god nuns falling in love with this <laughs> like, just like going nuts for this uh guy with the long legs and short shorts i mean i i don't know <laughs>
2: <laughs> it really is surreal in a way that you don't think about sort of haze code era movies being surreal at least I don't I mean you know like you think about noir you think about you know some of the romances and the musicals and stuff like they're pretty straightforward but this movie is is really you, I mean it's surreal and like not in a Todd Browning way because like they are in sort of heaven I, I but it really cool really cool and you know I I I was I had not seen the movie before. And, you know, there's this conversation as it's going that's like, what exactly is happening? And I'm like, I'm taking it for I'm taking it at face value. You know, like when he jumped out of the plane, he didn't have anything to live for. He was living just thinking about God and country. And now he has something to live for. His circumstances are different. And and heaven includes interceding like beings that can make mistakes and everybody's just sort of like, okay, is that actually literally what's going on? Yes. Take the movie. Face value. Let's rock. Like, tell me the story.
0: Yes.
2: It's yes. such a good,
0: it was a really cool movie. I, yeah. I appreciate that one. I had not seen that one before. Stephanie, what is your number two movie for 1946?
1: That would be Gilda.
3: There never was a woman like Gilda or a picture like Gilda. Columbia's Outstanding Screen Triumph, starring Rita Hayworth, with Glenn Ford. That's what I told Belle, and that's what you're going to tell me. Making me deceive my husband. I got some news for you, Gilda. He didn't just buy something. He's in love with you. One man bought Gilda. Another hated her and hungered for her.
1: I hate you too, Johnny. I hate you so much though. I think I'm going to die from it. Gilda opens a weird little like miniature door into a world that I don't know what the fuck is going on there. (laughs) I mean, Gilda, I I love it, but I also, I find it satisfying to watch and Mm -hmm. also I, I find it entertaining to watch but ultimately unsatisfying. Like, I feel like a million things are going on in my head while I'm watching it and then it's over and I'm like, what? It's over? But um, actually, Eddie Mueller, who is this, um, you know, like quite a uh, noir scholar, yes. has said about this film, like it's so weird. I mean, it's on the surface, it's not really that weird, but then when you really start to think about it, it's very weird. And he, you know, he watched it and he said, "Have I just seen the Mulholland Drive of 1946?" Oh wow! <laughs> because okay, I mean, there's some coded like very subterranean mm-hmm. homosexual undertones of course but then of course there's Rita Hayworth who is just like the yeah the the the, the height of the triangle you know yeah. between them and she is just spectacular yeah um anyway yeah um I haven't even gotten into the, the all the ways in which is weird <laughs> <laughs> well you know and I'm
0: I mean, well, you know, I made a note, and we'll get to a few of them when we get to the lightning round. But there was, there was, you know, noir was it felt like really sort of kicking into gear around now. There were a lot of good noirs that year. I, what do you think it is about this one that that sort of makes it stand out from the pack? Is it that sort of that strangeness? That sort of that 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 how hard it is to kind of get your arms around it?
1: I I think that's it, and I think well, there's a couple of things. First of all. We have no idea what that romance was like right. between Glenn Ford and Rita. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you're like, you know, they see each other, you know, she's married his boss like on purpose to, to hurt him. And they just look at each other, and it's like... And, you know, the thing is, you never see it. Like, in another movie, you'd see a flashback. You'd see them all having a picnic, or, like, fighting, or, you know, something like that. Even
0: Casablanca gives you the flashback.
1: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But in this, you're like, what did these two kids do to each other? Yeah. (laughs) Totally left up to your imagination, and it could be anything. Like, you picture, like knives being thrown <laughs> into the wall and just like you don't know you yeah. know so there's that so there's yeah. this whole backstory that is not spelled out but certainly implied like there yeah. was some you know. and and then the way she is so she says you know oh my god i hate you so much i'm gonna like just dist- i'm gonna destroy my life and take you down with me that's how much i hate you and then she actually kind of tries to do that. And then she sort of changes her mind and then he changes his mind and he decides, no, I'm going to fuck with you. <laughs> and then it all sort of writes itself very, very, very quickly at the end, which I think is part of the reason it's unsatisfactory. Cause sure. it's like, Oh, come on, you guys, it would take more than that. <laughs> but it's, it is very, I don't know. It's just like weirdly compelling. And also, uh, Rita Hayworth, that her entrance, you know, Gilda, are you decent? You know, she sort of bounces up out, you know, from the bottom of the frame, and her hair is like perfect, you know, reddish gold, and she's also for like uh for femme fatale, she is very unusual because Mm -hmm. she is she's sparkling, you Mm -hmm. know. There's she's I mean she's sexy, but. She's not sultry or like seductive in that way. She's just like a, Mm -hmm. she's like a champagne bubble, you know. And yet she is just totally out for to, you know. Destroy. Yeah. Yeah. No. I
0: mean, you know, one of my sort of pet peeves these days is the 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 criminal overuse of the word iconic. But that that entrance. That's iconic. <laughs> that, that that it that's it in a nutshell. All right, we've come to we've come to the conclusion. We're we're ready for the fifth and final film in our uh, in our rundown. Stephanie, what is your number five for
1: 1946? That is Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Mm. For
3: the great people who have not perdu their children...
1: Which is just, I think, one of the most perfect and beautiful films ever made. Not just perfect and beautiful among fantasy films. And also, you know, we're talking about films made right after the war. Um you know uh obviously we had you know we sent soldiers over from america and you know and and uh, people gave their lives um you know fighting the against all that stuff that <laughs> that we <laughs> outlined at the beginning of the episode um but in france i mean oh my god like uh you know the german occupation had just ended um what like 2 years previous before mm-hmm. uh, 1946 and people were still hungry um didn't have any food uh Jean Cocteau I think was receiving like gifts of food from friends in California like mm. at the time when he started making this film and um you know just real serious deprivation and and also I mean culturally like French culture you think about what it would be like to have to stop that because mm-hmm. uh, the like oh the Germans yeah. are here and they're like controlling what films we make and yeah. you know Coco Chanel uh, she kept her house alive by sleeping with Nazis that's on her <laughs> however you know I think anybody who goes to Paris and marvels at the beauty of that city is at least indirectly complicit in the decision that the French made they wanted to save their landmarks and their beautiful city. Mm-hmm. And it is there for That is a
2: salty take on Very Good Year. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's complex. That's fair. that's fucking complicated. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, um anyway, so this film, oh my god, the cameras weren't working. He couldn't get like all the same kind of film stock, so he mm. just kind of used what, whatever um you know, they, they filmed at this castle. It was, you know, in the French countryside. And I think, you know, there's a very, very beautiful scene where the, um, the Beast, played by Jean Marais, under these layers and layers of, like, mm-hmm. fur and makeup. And he's got, like, the little mm-hmm. pointy teeth. And he had to eat soup because, you know, he couldn't. The makeup took so long to, to you know, took so long to get him ready. Um, and he, so the Beast goes for a drink. Um, and it's like very like magical and beautiful, but I think it's like a, um, oh God, what's it called? It's like a, um, a, a sewage runoff or something <laughs> that was like a- on oh the like, I mean, <laughs>
0: I was struck by the sort of semi-eroticism of that scene. And oh, Stephanie, you have ruined no, it. No, you no. have ruined but, it.
1: I mean, that's the thing. This incredibly beautiful yeah. film that was made like, okay, wow, this is the best we can do. We'll shoot it. We so go. That it it yeah. looks really pretty. And, and of course, and the film is really, really erotic. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the story of, some people say it was Greta Garbo and some say it was Tula Bankhead. I don't think they know quite who said it. But at the end, when the beast turns into a prince, and it's Jean Marais, the real Jean Marais with his blonde hair, and pretty good-looking guy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but whether it was Tallulah or Greta, they were like, give me back my beast, Mm. because that beast is Mm -hmm. so beautiful, and such an incredible performance that Mm -hmm. Jean Marais gives, like, just with his eyes, basically, conveys everything, the heartache of that character, so... Yeah. yeah, there's a lot going on there. Yeah,
0: there sure is. No, I mean, you know, just just the, I mean, just the blocking and the composition, just the way of sort of creating, a, it, it feels like he's redefining cinematic language in, in in scenes of this movie. Like the way that that the camera is blocked, the way that the camera moves, feels. F- Way ahead of its time. Just feels so sort of advanced and forward thinking. And of course, the problem now with this is, you know, Beauty and the Beast is yet another story that's been sort of, you know, stolen and corrupted and uh, vanilla sized by the Disney machine. But it's like, this is the real deal like there's it's it's there's there's a magic to the film but there's also a real kind of danger to it and and a a mysteriousness and an enigma to it that's you know of course all those sort of rough edges are, are are sanded away it's a it's it's a really it's a beautiful movie um, and this is a beautiful top five, uh, Stephanie. Thank you so yes. much for for putting yes. this together
1: for us. My my pleasure. Sorry, it's kind of a downer year, but no. pretty
0: great movies. There's a, there's you know e- even the thing I always say when someone when I recommend a movie to somebody and they say that you know oh I heard that was depressing. It's like I'm never depressed by a filmmaker um, working at the height of their powers. And it really does feel like in all of these films, like, like these were filmmakers who who had really figured it out and had been through some stuff and wanted to like put that on the screen in a compelling way. And they they all kind of did. We've
2: been on here praising Tarkovsky. I mean, you know, there's nothing <laughs> to apologize
0: for. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money in the year of our Lord 1946. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me. Oh, yeah, sell out. I mean,
2: there's there's really only one answer here. (laughs) Best film, best director, William Wyler, best adapted screenplay to Robert E. Sherwood, best actor to Frederick March, best supporting actor to Harold Russell. Russell also won an honorary award, quote, for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in The Best Years of
0: Our Lives. This is one of my favorite, like, like it's maybe the best Oscar double tap story of all time, because clearly they created that honorary award because like, well, he's a non-actor. There's no way he's going to win the award, the best supporting actor. So we better give him some. And then he takes them both home. Like God bless him. (laughs) I love that. I love that for him. Um, What else, uh, what else did well at that year's Oscars, Mike? Best actress went to Olivia de Havilland for to each his own. I have not seen To Each His
1: Own. No, I haven't either. I will. And I should because I love Olivia DeHelma. I know. She's mm. awesome.
0: Mm-hmm. We'll
1: put that on our list. There you go. Best
2: Supporting Actress to Anne Baxter. Also, Golden Globes for Best Supporting Actor to Clifton Webb and Best Supporting Actress to Ann Baxter for The Razor's Edge.
0: I haven't seen this version of The Razor's
1: Edge. No, all of our gaps exposed. <laughs> Deary me. <laughs> You call yourself a critic, Jason Bailey? <laughs> and
2: for his outstanding achievement as actor, producer, and director in bringing Henry
0: V to the screen. Oh, Olivier, baby. That was, oh yeah, yeah. that was the year he got his his honorary uh, for that, for his extremely post-World War II Henry V. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's
1: That's a good one.
2: one. Yeah,
0: it is. It is. Some
2: other significant award winners. Golden Globe for Best Director went to Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life. Is that movie the one that has, like,
0: the most staying power out of, uh, from 46? How do you feel about It's a Wonderful Life, Stephanie Zakarik? Well. (laughs) (laughs) I was warned, and I, I steeled myself.
1: No, I, you know what? I don't hate it. I also have not looked at it in probably, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's been 40 years, so I should watch it. But, you know, okay. Uh, I'm generally not a Frank Capra person. I love It Happened One Night. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I love... uh, like uh, Platinum Blonde. And- the early funny ones, if you will. Yeah. And, and I don't... The, the sort of er, more earnest ones... I'll, I'll tell you what happened to me. Preston Sturgis <laughs> happened to me. Yeah. And once I saw... I It was probably the Lady Eve was probably the first Sturgis I saw. I was just like, oh my God. This guy just like speaks to the darkness of my soul <laughs> in a way that... um that Frank Capra doesn't and that Capra just feels kind of uh, I don't want to say false. I, I i think that's a really unfair character characterization. But, you know, I, I don't really respond to movies, that like cozy movies. Mm-hmm. I don't, I like to be I, I like to just feel like really unsettled and, and I also like to laugh. I mean, obviously I love, you know, that's why I love Preston just because I think he's hilarious. But I also feel that um, you know in Sturgis like there's never any there's never any real assurance of a happy ending mm-hmm. um and I just really like that and the, the thing about it, uh, it's a wonderful life is I I don't I I like people who move away from home and do exciting things not like <laughs> <laughs> I mean to put it bluntly. <laughs> Um, what can I say?
2: Oh, no, no, stop the movies. feel like they were made by like a guy who never had his heart broken (laughs) to me. Like he's like, he's like somebody who like every day he still wakes up with a little bit of hope. He's never woken up on any morning. Like, you know what? It is actually fucking hopeless, you know? Uh And you can't live that way or and like go make movies because it's too hard to make movies. But I think you can sort of tell the directors that didn't that have never really like had that hopeless day. And he just feels like one of them to me. I don't know why.
0: All right, yeah, well, a I'm good not. Way I'm, of it. I'm yeah. not going to argue the virtues of "It's a Wonderful Life" you with can. you two cynics, <laughs> with you two cold-hearted souls. I will merely note that this evening I wore over to Stephanie's apartment my <laughs> Bailey Brothers Building and Loan Association T-shirt. Mike, what else? Uh, what were some of our other significant award winners for 1946? Golden Globe for Best Actor went to Gregory Peck for "The Yearling." Thoughts on the yearling,
1: Stephanie? I have not seen the yearling because I, I, I think I would just cry and cry. Yep. So Fair. I no, I, you I would. haven't. But I, I maybe should see it. But I don't know if I'm ever in the mood to cry that much. But
2: <laughs> Golden Globe for Best Actress went to Rosalind Russell for
0: Sister Kenny not seen sister kenny have you seen sister kenny with rosalind russell no I i'm don't. fine with rosalind russell winning any award that she's up for yeah. uh based solely on his girl friday but i've not seen uh,
1: sister Kenny. i don't know anything about that film there we
2: go golden globe for best picture new york film critics circle award for best film the best years of our lives
0: Best years of our lives <laughs> of course. Really, could have seen that was coming. one just just did real well all right and what <laughs> what did the uh, domestic box office look like in 46 mike
2: Number ten, the aforementioned yearling, people just crying in their coats. So just a theater yep. full of people crying into their coats. Uh, number yep. nine was Notorious. Yeah, Hitchcock's yeah. uh, note, no
1: Notorious. Yeah, baby, fucking great. I mean, that was actually going to be one of my five, but. Um, I I just I I kind of like the way these others fit Theoretically yeah, but yeah, but Notorious It's so, so fucking good. good. It's yes, so it's, good. So good.
0: it's so good. It's so I mean, you want to talk about a sexy 1946 movie? My god, those uh-huh. two. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay. Number 8, Cary Grant as Cole Porter in Night and Day. A <laughs> couple, couple of Cary Grants in the uh, in the top 10 there. I've 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 not seen Night and Day.
1: No, me neither. Mm.
0: I've, I've heard it's not great. I just read a very good Cary Grant biography that said that it was not very great. So I'm going to take uh, Scott Amon's word for it. <laughs> number seven. Yeah, let that be a movie
2: that's watched by the, bio- the people who are writing bios. And the rest of there us can take their word for it. Yep. Uh, number seven, Tyrone Power in The Razor's Edge. Yep. Yeah. Number six, Jane Russell in The
0: Outlaw. I've seen in the outlaw. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> the outlaw. This is actually a little bit of an asterisk because there was there was an earlier release that was pulled, and this was a re-release apparently in '46 uh, film that had a bit of trouble with the censors. Uh, have you seen I the wonder
1: outlaw? Wonder why. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how do you, How do you feel about that one?
1: Yeah, it's you know it was a long time ago that I watched it, so I don't remember a lot of details, but I remember certain attributes. Sure.
2: <laughs> sure thing. There we are. And now I'm curious. Gary <laughs> Cooper uh, and Ingrid Bergman in a western in Fifth Place
0: Saratoga Trunk. Like I made the note of that cuz I can I've never seen uh, Saratoga Have you seen this movie? Saratoga Saratoga Trunk? No,
1: I haven't. But um isn't that the one where um Oh, she has that great line like someone says, "Oh, you're so beautiful." And she says, "Yes, isn't it lucky?" <laughs> So I've either seen it or I've read about it. I yeah. think I read the book when I was a kid, but
0: I sh- I sh- I should see that. You sold me on it.
2: Title doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Not a good Not band exactly. name. Saratoga nope. Trunk. Terrible band nope. name. Yep. Uh number 4, Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire in an Irving Berlin
0: musical, Blue Skies. That's that's I feel like I should have seen that.
1: Yeah, I have I saw it as a kid because I I watched all because I was crazy about Fred Astaire. He was mm. my boyfriend um in my mind um yes. so I would watch it whenever it came on tv um yeah so
0: is it I mean is it as good as a Bing Crosby Fred Astaire Irving Berlin musical sounds
1: it's pretty good okay it's probably not as good as um oh, what's the other one there uh Holiday Inn it's right. uh I don't think it's like quite that caliber, but I don't know. I mean, 10-year-old me was like, yes. Yeah. Just, just adored it. Fair enough.
2: Number three, the Jolson story. Yeah, all right. So a lot of blackface in that one. <laughs> Do we know? We don't know. Probably. Uh, number two, Duel in the Sun.
0: Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, baby. It's a great little film. That's a good one. That's that. Man, it's a sexy top 10. Yeah, Duel in the Sun is, is pretty great. It is spicy. Yes. yes. Yes, it is. Jennifer Jones. A uh-huh. uh-huh.
2: Okay, Jason,
0: is this a, uh, is, it this sure a is is this this a hat trick, buddy? It's our first hat trick in a long, long time. Do sound you got to bust out the hat trick? The hat trick sound effect? Please do. Please do. Oh, would you believe it? A hat trick. You are witnessing something quite spectacular.
3: Complete the hat trick. Crazy.
0: Just crazy. Remarkable hat trick. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Uh-huh. Y'all ready for this? Stephanie, it's a really big deal, because occasionally, and very occasionally, uh, we have a film that tops the box office, wins Best Picture, and is on the Guest Top 5. And Mike, what is that film this year? I mean, I feel like I've already said it enough times, haven't I? The Best Years of Our Lives. Very, uh, everybody loved The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946, including Stephanie Zagari.
1: With good reason.
0: With good reason. All right, are you ready for a lightning round?
1: Yeah, Yeah, sure. (laughs)
0: All right. We're putting five minutes on the big clock. I'm going to list you off some other 1946 releases. Uh, Yay or nay or pass or anything you'd like to say about any of them. Here we go. David Lean's Brief Encounter hit the U.S. in 1946.
1: Oh, yeah. That's a good one.
0: Rome Open City also arrived in uh, the United States in 1946.
1: Yeah. Well, that's landmark, certainly. Diary
0: of a Chambermaid came out in 1946.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, cl- closing out the international portion of the lightning round, "Children of Paradise" was released in the U.S. in nineteen.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so so, that's a great one.
0: Yeah, we are fan of of all of these uh, esteemed international releases.
1: Yeah, you know those are things. Um, this is actually how I saw Beauty uh, Beauty and the Beast for the first time was. PBS did, like, a series mm. of, a lot of, people. I think Quentin Tarantino has talked about, like, people in a certain age group, like, said, I'm gonna watch these fancy French films on <laughs> television, and so that was kind of the entree into that world, but, um, yeah, those are all, no, those are all great.
0: Beautiful. John Ford's My Darling Clementine.
1: Yeah, that one's,
0: yeah. Um,
1: I don't really know what to say about these, it's like, yeah, <laughs>
0: That's enough. It's a lightning round. Orson Welles, The Stranger. You know,
1: oh, God, I knew you were going to say that. And I was like, I have never seen The Stranger. And that is bad because Orson Welles is, you know, one of my gods. One of your homies? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I have to remedy that. But, um, yeah, so, well, I just just outed myself.
0: If there's a Welles to have not seen... It's probably the stranger.
1: That's kind yeah. of that was kind of my sense, but I yeah, so I I got to see that.
0: Howard Hawks, The Big Sleep. Oh yeah, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Bogie and Bacall. Yeah. Uh, Plus the Harvard Blue Hawks. Dahlia yeah. was released in 1940. Never seen that. Ooh, okay, good one. Uh, Burt Lancaster and Ava Garner in The Killers. Oh yeah. <laughs> We've (laughs) entered the noir portion of the lightning round. The postman always rings twice. Now
1: that I have never seen. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. What Um, was
1: it? I forget who it was. It was like uh, Manny Farber said, like it's it's so bad you can't stop watching it. I don't know what. Probably totally misquoting, but Manny Farber. What did he? I don't know know who was Manny. Maybe it was like Otis Ferguson. I get them all or whatever.
0: Um. Lucille Ball, pre-TV Lucy, co-starred in a really terrific little noir called *The Dark Corner*. Have you seen *The Dark Corner*? No. That's. Have I've, you seen? It? I've seen it because it was portions were shot in New York City, and uh, oh, so, so you I, watched yes, it? I did. I did see that. Betty Davis in *Deception* was released in 1946.
1: Oh, yeah, I've never seen *Deception*.
0: Ernst Lubitsch's *Clooney Brown*.
1: I had never seen Clooney Brown. It's, it's that pretty good. is, yeah, that is something I love, Lubich. So,
0: Judy Garland in the Harvey Girls.
1: No, never seen a little Judy Garland. Gives a little, <laughs> no, no, I love her. I really love her, but oh, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. No. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. The penultimate Marx
0: Brothers effort, A Night in Casablanca, was released in 1946.
1: Yeah, I saw that when I was a kid, but I don't remember anything about it it's other not, than
0: yep. not terribly memorable. Danny Kaye and the Kid from Brooklyn.
1: Nope. Bob Hope
0: had two pictures out in 1946: Monsieur Beaucaire and uh, The Road to Utopia with Bing Crosby.
1: Oh, uh, you know, unless I just watch them on TV as a Sapling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen them. <laughs> I
0: have. I have discovered quite a fondness for Mr. Hope's work in recent years. Being a child of the '80s, who knew only knew him as like this. Fat, unfunny Republican. Like, it's actually quite shocking to go back and watch the 40s movies and realize how funny he was once upon a time. Uh, two Abbott and Costello pictures in 1946. I don't know how you feel about them, but these are the two strangest, perhaps. Little Giant and The Time of Their Lives, the two films in which they did not appear as a team because they hated each other so very much. Oh my God. No, I have <laughs> seen neither. I'm not making this up, Mike. These are two movies yeah, those where they movies just. These are
2: better to read about than to watch.
0: <laughs> they appear in separate scenes because that's how bad their relationship was at that time uh two i've seen half of one of them (laughs) two sherlock holmes (laughs) pictures out in 1946 with rathbone and bruce dressed to kill and terror by night
1: yeah you know what that's another area i haven't seen any of those unless i watched them as a kid on tv and just like wasn't really was only paying half attention
0: all right well i gotta close out the lightning round with the most beloved possible title walt disney's big 1946 release song of the south no
1: i've never seen it (laughs) (laughs)
0: how it's so it's so easy to see stephanie how have you missed its annual airings it's it's frequent streaming (laughs) on disney plus etc etc all right that closes us out an excellent lightning round um stephanie uh before we go we're gonna we're gonna throw it to our friend w axel foley for a quick psa for our listeners head on over to your favorite podcasting app give us a star a rate a review give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here and where can people read your work? Where can they follow you on social media? How can they how can they catch up with some of the best damn film writing today?
1: Oh, Jason, you're too kind. Mm. Um Speechful. well, at at timetime.com or in the the we still do an actual print magazine comes out every other week. Oh my goodness. Um yeah, still pretty amazing. Fancy beautiful covers. Yeah. Um take a lot of pride in uh, the work that our reporters do and we get great photographers and all that stuff. So, yeah. So um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at S. Zaharic just like that. Um, I don't know. Where else? My Instagram is private. Uh-oh. So, I all mean, right. you can ask <laughs> to be let in. But if I don't know you, I am very unlikely to say yes and don't take it personally. It's just because after Joker came out, I had people coming on there oh saying your cat is ugly and stuff oh my like that. God. And I was just like, uh oh, uh oh, no, no, shutting that down.
0: Total, total totally normal fandom. Totally, totally healthy way to interact with art. Yep. Uh,
1: exactly. Yep. But Twitter, World I lo- I love Twitter, so yeah. Come follow me on Twitter.
0: All right. You can follow me on Twitter, Jason-Bailey, uh, or uh, on Instagram at FunCityCinema. Mike, where can the people follow you. On Twitter, at BrainwashedLib. And uh, before we go, Mike, what is your favorite movie of 1946?
2: My favorite movie of 1946 is No Regrets for Our Youth by Kurosawa. It is, like, just naming a movie No Regrets for Our Youth as a Japanese person in 1946 is just fucking mind-blowing all by itself. And it does have a kind of like an early Hitchcock, you know, it's don't start there with Kurosawa. Start later, you know, right? It's not necessarily where you need to begin. It has an old-school feel. It has a very old-school look. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, sort of due to equipment, issues and, and you know, sort of being broke as some of the other movies we were talking about earlier. And, and you know, I mean, we're like, this is literally like a year after the bombs right. were dropped. Right. Uh, also, you know, he never would have been able to make this movie because it's a really a movie in a lot of ways about fighting fascism um, is sort of the not necessarily the emotional undertone, but is a lot of sort of the like ad, the movement, the plot stuff. And, you know, he would have been shot by a firing squad if that movie came out a year if he even tried to make it a year earlier right so the fact that it came out so close on the on the heels uh of the war and the end of their imperial government is just sort of mind-blowing to me so
0: yeah no regrets for our youth how about you um here's the thing at the end of it's a wonderful life um when harry bailey comes in uh, and and they're, they're singing, and they've, they've they've started the fund to, to, to help George pay back the, the money, and when Harry Bailey comes in, and he says, he does the toast, he says to my brother George, the richest man in town, and when I was a kid, I thought that was a funny little joke, and I giggled, because he has all that money, and it's the richest man in town, and I watch It's a Wonderful Life every year, and the more of my life that I live, the more it chokes me up when he says that, and that's why i love it's a wonderful life so much word
2: that's a great answer especially after all the shit that got talked earlier i know a, i know that's a great answer i fucking great love it answer. jason bailey <laughs> yeah i love working with you dude you're the best <laughs> richest man i know
0: thank you again stephanie my pleasure thank you mike thank you jason and thank you for listening Sweet and clear.
3: it was a very